This episode was recorded in the summer of 2019. Since then, Expensify has launched its corporate card that also donates part of Interchange to charities, launched a virtual assistant for business travelers that's COVID aware, and has expanded partnerships worldwide. And this is the story of how it got to where it is today. Today on the CIBC Innovation Banking Podcast, expense management app Expensify was never your typical innovation economy startup. While CEO David Barrett focused on profit over growth, he's achieved both, all without giving up control of the company he founded. Fundamentally, the differentiation of Expensify is not just our functionality and so forth. I mean, all of that will get copied inevitably. Our real long-term differentiation is how we acquire customers and that we do it in a, uh, in a way that is dramatically lower cost of sale or really has no cost of sale because we actually have no, uh, we don't spend anything for customer acquisition. It's 100% organic. And as such, we're able to reach parts of the market that no one else can. On this episode of the CIBC Innovation Banking Podcast, we turn the Silicon Valley business model on its ear. Here is Michael Hainsworth. David Barrett is a maverick CEO. As startups flooded Silicon Valley, he built his more than a thousand kilometers away in Portland, Oregon. When MBAs told him Fortune 500 companies were his target clients, he targeted small to medium-sized business. And while venture capitalists worshipped at the altar of growth, he built his temple out of profit. We began our conversation by talking about how he never intended to get into the expense management business in the first place. So let's rewind the clock to 2008. You've described filing expense receipts as super boring, tedious work. So why on earth did you ever want to go deeper down that rabbit hole? Well, the funny thing is, actually, it was kind of an accident. Um, my last startup got acquired, and I lived in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, and I wanted to build, you know, some platform to help uh, distribute secure money to the homeless where they couldn't be spent on alcohol and drugs because San Francisco has great facilities, but only if you show up sober. And so I started building a platform around prepaid debit cards, basically around uh, just giving a, a debit card to the homeless that would uh, charge back to my credit card in order to, you know, give out money and help people out. But I went to the banks with this idea, and they're just like, what? No, we're not going to help you build this weird platform to give out money. I'm like, all right, I need to sound low risk. I need to sound boring. I'm like, what is the most boring application of these cards I can think of? And I'm like, aha, expense report. So that's actually how I got into it. I'm like, um, yeah, forget all that. This is going to be a card that business owners give to their employees. Uh, they can specify spending limits on it, and then every purchase made by the employee goes back to the business owner's uh, credit card so they can get the miles. And so same exact technology, but presented in the way the banks could understand. And so they're like, oh, that sounds safe and boring, and I hate my expense reports too. And so I just kept saying yes to everything. They're like, oh, this sounds great. Do you, uh, you, know, do you know export to my accounting system? I'm like, oh, yes, of course I do. Does it scan receipts? And yes, of course it. So I just said yes to everything. People seem to really like this expense reporting system. I should just do that. And so that's how I got into it. It's funny you, you say the phrase that really appeals to me as someone who he himself has jumped into the entrepreneurial waters. I've, I've considered a lot of my success to come down to saying yes to everything. And that's exactly what you did. Oh, I, I completely agree. I mean, it's the whole sort of attitude of collaboration. It's the being a, a, a yes and versus a yes but person. I mean, I think in so many cases, people are obsessed with uh, experts. It's like, you know, you want to always hire the expert. You don't want to reinvent the wheel sort of thing. But 
if you can't invent a wheel, why would you think you can invent anything better? I think that the problem with experts is they can only be an expert in the past. No one's an expert in the future. And so if you want to be able to figure out the future, that means you need to just get comfortable with, you know, learning and making mistakes on your own. And so I think definitely just moving forward and just charging forward without really waiting around for permission or really asking the best practice, just charge your own path and figure it out as you go. That was one of the most interesting things I learned early on about the entrepreneurial world is that the word mistake is not a bad word. Oh, yeah. In fact, I was talking with one of my um, teammates today, and uh, she was asking about, like, oh, this particular thing, it didn't work out as we thought it was. You know, would we count it as a failure? And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I just, I don't think about the idea of failure. Like, if you're climbing a mountain or something like this, and you, you, you're climbing up, you're moving, you find a different path, you're exploring, and eventually you find your way to the top, like, was there any specific step that was a failure? It's like, well, yeah, maybe not all of them went exactly where we wanted them to go. But in the grand scheme of things, everything's just moving forward. And so I think this idea of mistakes or failure or uh, all of this, I, I don't know if they really make sense to me. I think it's more about so long as in the aggregate, you're always moving forward. These are just lessons learned. We've got startup, growth stage, and late stage. Since you were founded in 2008, you're well past the startup stage. What's the difference as far as you see it from going from that startup phase to growth? Well, first, I would kind of challenge that framing. That, that suggests that startup is just a matter of age. I think it's more of a matter of attitude. It's like, do you think your best days are ahead of you or behind you? And I think that our best days are definitely ahead of us. And so I think we are every bit as innovative or startup-centric as, as before. Like, certainly in Silicon Valley, I think there's sort of this mythos of the uh, that, uh, like, you know, a company starts off, it's a couple, you know, kids in garage, things are really awesome, but... Then eventually you hire some older people and they bring in the experience and sure things grow, but things slow down and it's not as fun. Um, you know, you, you get some, a, a board in place and then they make a bunch of sort of boring decisions and the business grows, but you know, all the innovations behind it and all your best people leave. And there's kind of this notion of like startup entropy where you start off really um, dynamic and then you end up just kind of really boring. And I've really pushed back on that. I would say that that only happens if you let it happen to you. Gross profit is not the same as net profit. Uh, Expensify is actually profitable. We put cash in the bank every month. And so as a result, we're not really beholden to the Silicon Valley sort of norms that you always just have to be raising money and spending money and so forth. We just control our own destiny. And that means that we can hire who we want, we can grow how we want. And as such, I think that we have far more control and a far greater appetite for risk now than ever before. And so I think from a startup perspective, if it's tolerance of risk, if it's enthusiasm for the future, like now is a much better time to be at the company than ever before. Yeah, but how many startups do you know that are profitable? I, I can't imagine there are a lot of two kids in a garage scenarios looking at you, considering you in their category. I mean, I agree they probably aren't, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't. I, I, this whole idea that startups can't be profitable, it's like, like, oh, yeah, you know, profits anathema to growth. I'm like, well, what are you talking about? The largest companies in the world are also the most profitable. I think people choose the wrong companies to model themselves after. It's, sure, if you just model yourself after the startups out there that are just hemorrhaging cash, then shocker, you're going to hemorrhage cash too. But I've always taken my inspiration from the real businesses that have been around for a long time and will be here forever. You didn't take on the big boys in the space when you launched. You know, venture capitalists might argue you should have been knocking on the doors of the Fortune 500 companies. Tell me about the entrepreneurial strategy of finding big growth, helping little companies. 
Well, actually, I would say, like most things, um, I wouldn't claim there's a lot of you know genius foresight into it. It's really just about paying attention to what's working, even if no one thinks it's possible. So when we started off, we were going after the little guys just because that's all we knew. But because we were uh, you know, kind of the standard for Silicon Valley, some of our little guys became big guys really fast. We've always had a policy of we're not really going to go after anyone because we don't do any marketing. We don't do any upbound calling. It's 100% inbound, and we just take whoever comes. And some of those companies just grew very large. And so as a result, we ended up building an enterprise product. So we can support pretty much anyone, the Fortune 500, if we choose to. And once we, um, so we found it's like, wow, we have this enterprise product that we just didn't really expect to build. Well, uh, and now we've got these large Fortune 500 companies reaching out to us. And we're like, that's great. We'll take the call. Problem is, Fortune 500 sucks. It's just like a ton of work for very little revenue. Uh, finding like a, um, because it's so competitive up there and everyone knows how to find them and everyone's uh, competing for them, all of your margins just fall apart. And so as a result, we're realizing, wow, we can just make way more money on a customer half the size in absolute dollars. And so why would we talk to this larger customer that is just going to be so much work and require a tremendous amount of uh, management and engineering and things like this, I can just get so many more customers in so much more raw cash at much higher margin by going for a mid-sized customer. And so I would say actually uh, uh, mid-market SMB is really our sweet spot because that's the place where classic business models kind of fail. I think that um, fundamentally the differentiation of Expensify is not just our functionality and so forth. I mean, all of that will get copied inevitably. Our real long-term differentiation is how we acquire customers and that we do it in a, uh, in a way that is dramatically lower cost of sale or really has no cost of sale because we actually have no, uh, we don't spend anything for customer acquisition. It's 100% organic. And as such, we're able to reach parts of the market that no one else can. Because I think, and I think I've kind of maybe have a different view of the market. Like, um, uh, we have something like 80,000 customers. Uh, let's say the sum of all of the competition combined has maybe another 80,000 customers. Let's round up. Let's call it maybe 200,000 companies in the entire world use any form of expense management. But there are 20, billion, 20 million businesses in the U.S. alone. And so I think that the, and every single one of these businesses has some kind of expense problem because every business has expenses. Not all of them have revenue. Certainly most of them have profit, but all of them have expenses. So literally every business on the entire planet has this problem in a vanishingly small fraction. It's scratching the bare surface is the entire expense management industry so far. And so when we went into this industry, we're like, why is everyone so obsessed with these incredibly uh, uh, unusual uh, and low margin customers at the top when 99% of the opportunity is actually very simple, has very basic repeatable requirements, and is willing to pay an insanely high margin to get it. So no, I just think everyone's missed the boat on the big opportunity because they have a business model, or more importantly, a customer acquisition model, which is focused on just the Fortune 500 because that's the people that are easy to find. You get to look a bit harder and have a business model that can reach the rest of the market if you want to capture the rest of the market. You said something interesting back there. You said at the SMB level, the small to medium-sized business level, classic business models fail. What do you mean by that? Well, I would say there's a huge gulf between consumer acquisition and enterprise acquisition. Because in fact, when I got into this space, I'm like, oh, I'm going to do expense management. Everyone's like, oh, I know exactly how your business is going to go. They're going to put together a commission-based sales force who's going to go out, 
beat on the doors of the Fortune 500. They're going to lock in a three-year contract for large commission, which is going to go into a large product management organization for the multi-year commitments you're going to have to make. That, of course, is going to be handed over to a large account management team, which is going to try to land and expand over time. Your entire business model is completely predictable. And I would say literally every, every one of our competitors is trying to follow that same model. And so as such, they're all advertising in the same places for the same economics. They're all hiring and trading back and forth the same salespeople. They all have everything about their business is exactly the same. The economics, the engineering, the strategy, everything. And so I don't know how you can disrupt an industry by literally exactly the same as everyone else. Our approach is very different. Like we don't advertise. And so as a result, we don't have a, a, a business model based around uh, salespeople. Like we don't have any salespeople. We don't actually do any outbound calling. That means we have no commission structure. Without a commission structure, that means we aren't doing multi-year contracts. Like 99 or 90% of our revenue is just month to month on a credit card. And so as a result, uh, we, try, we don't have to lock people in, oversell the product. We just build a product and then people just buy it. And so this means that the customers that we have are largely self-service. They actually don't have any sort of commitments from us and we just build and release when we need to. And so it makes for a completely different internal structure for the company. And uh, as a result, this means that we have vastly higher margin than everyone else. Like we're insanely profitable um, and growing faster than everyone else with more customers than everyone else. And so this is only possible because our business model is so different. If it were possible to do by just tweaking a few of the variables by one of the existing business models, I'd say any of our dozen or so competitors would have figured out that, that mix of, of knobs. But no, we have a completely different machine, which produces a completely different result. So did you go into that deliberately? Did you build the business saying, I've looked at the traditional way of building a business model for a, a company. Everyone else is going to do it that way. We're going to go about it a different way. Or did you just sort of start putting the pieces together over time and then you step back and you realized you had something unique? Oh, it's definitely the latter. I mean, it's easy to look back in hindsight and be like, oh, you know, I've I did all this research and studied things and figured out the opportunity and went after it. I'm like, no, it didn't work like that at all. I, as I mentioned, I, I didn't intend to make this business. Right. And uh, the only reason I did it was because people were so excited. Like at this conference, I, I can't tell you how many just strangers came up and just give me creepy hugs. They're like, you're going to save me so much time. <laughs> and it's like, really? Why? Just tell me what, what is it you think that I'm doing and why do you care so much? And after you talk to, I don't know, a couple thousand business travelers, they're just like, I hate all of the options out here so bad. And you're like, why do you hate it specifically? And then I realized there was so much pain on the business traveler. And I'm like, oh, I, I can solve that, I guess. I'm an engineer. I could just build that. Um, and then I talked to all the experts. And they'd be like, what are you talking about? That's never going to work. When, when are you going to hire your sales team to go after uh, you know, the CFOs? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just going to sell straight to employees. So like, well, how does that work? Because employees don't choose their own expense management. I'm like, it just seems like they're using Excel or really nothing at all. I mean, like, it just feels like they're, they're willing to buy. I'm like, well, that's, that's crazy. People are going to get fired if they try to do it. I'm like, I don't know. It doesn't seem like people are getting fired. It just seems like it's working. Um, and it's only after a, a quite a long period we sort of realized why it was working. And I would say it's uh, expense management is insanely viral, but only inside the company. Um, so every time you submit an expense report, you put us in touch with someone more important than you, like your boss, your finance department, and so forth. And then with the advent of the mobile app stores, uh, Expensify is a truly free app for employees. So we don't pay the, you know, the, the app store tax or anything like this. So as a result, we managed to convert through a free app 
the mobile app stores into a zero marginal cost uh, lead acquisition mechanism to employees uh, that feeds into an incredibly viral bottom-up uh, adoption dynamic straight to the CFO uh, and does it all at massive scale. So like an unusual startup where like on day one, we were just, we've always been absolutely flooded with leads. And so as a result, our, our challenge is not top of the funnel. Our challenge is how do we convert this massive swell of leads that are always coming to us? And so we, I think that because we didn't have the same problems as most companies where they're just begging to be noticed, we had such strong word of mouth from the earliest days uh, that it was about how do we just convert and capture what we already have. And I think that's sort of only, while trying to like talk with the others, it's like, there's no possible way this could work. It's like, or, or I guess it's usually, it's, um, it's like, okay, that, that's cute. This is a really cute model that you have here. That, that works up to like, you know, uh, $100,000 a month, but not to a million. Uh, and it goes like, well, then we get to a million. It's like, ah, oh, it doesn't work for like 2 million. They just keep going up, doubling again and again. And you realize, I don't know, it just kind of seems like it works forever. Maybe at some point, people have to start listening to the businesses that are actually making it work in practice and just accept that it's possible that all the best practices that we have around how to sell maybe aren't the only story, especially because everyone talks about like, uh, well, enterprise sales has always been exactly like it's being done right now. It's like, well, no, it's not. I mean, the whole idea of SaaS businesses didn't happen until Salesforce. And when Salesforce came onto the scheme, uh, they were just viewed as idiots. It's like, well, how could you possibly sell uh, products like this without an, an, uh, an established sales force, uh, like, you know, regional sales force. And I'd say again and again, sale, the whole notion of selling is a very innovative space. Uh, innovation happens over the course of decades, necessarily, not just years. And people tend to forget that just because this is all being done in a particular way right now, doesn't mean that it was always done that way. And certainly does not mean that it's always going to be this way. All right. So clearly you didn't go to MBA business school class <laughs> 101. So let's throw out the lessons of business 101. Let's find out if you threw out the lessons of business 201. How much of your time did you spend building the company versus schmoozing and acting as an ambassador for the company and, and raising money? As far as time spent schmoozing, I would say the most important lesson that I learned from that period is become profitable. Until you're profitable, you are always beholden to the next investor and you just don't control your destiny. And so from the very earliest days, um, when I sat down to build Expensify, I sat down to build a company that could get wildly profitable because all of the stuff that I wanted to do uh, depended upon having a ton of money and a great a team of people to spend it with. Um, and so, yeah, I'd say, say uh, raising money was a part of it, um, but now all I'm doing is spending every moment of my time trying to buy back shares for my investors because now that we're pro <laughs> now we're profitable i'm like that's cool you were there for a period but that period is over and i'm never going back well tell me about that though because you've raised more than 26 million in financing if my back of the napkin calculations are correct so you are an expert in raising cash oh no no no, no. i would say so first off i should by by silicon valley standards that's that's nothing it's a pittance it's a, a truly embarrassing number <laughs> People are shocked at how little we have raised. Uh, like usually, uh, people are raising and kicking off like multiple hundreds of millions of dollars to get to where we are. And we're like, no, we did it pretty much. The vast majority of our business is built through profit and, and, and through the money that we actually earned, it, which makes for a very different company culture. Uh, when it comes to raising money, I'm terrible at it actually uh, because I don't know how to spend it. And more importantly, I know I, I'm too honest about the fact that I don't really need it. Like um, because. 
you know, I, I have conversations early on with investors and I'm like, oh, I'm going to raise this money. It's going to be great. Like, what are you going to spend it on? I'm like, well, I don't know, maybe advertising. They're like, why? You haven't advertised a date. Everything's growing. Why would you advertise? It's like, yeah, maybe I'll spend it on this other thing. They're like, why? You, you just, engineers don't cost that much. And in the end, I could just never really convince anyone that I needed the money. And so therefore, I didn't really raise that much. And lo and behold, I didn't really need it in the first place. So uh, it's cool. And so I'm, I'm glad that we raised so little money. It's amazing. So then why was a debt facility from CIBC a logical step? Oh, well, debts, debt and, and equity are very different things. I think that um, it's funny. So in Silicon Valley, um, profit is anathema. Basically, it's like it's a heresy. It's basically like profit is viewed as just missed opportunity. Uh, and when I would talk to investors about trying to make a profitable business, I would just get blank stares. Like people would literally ask me, like, why? Like, why make a profitable business? Um, and forgetting that the point of business is not just to, you know, sell equity. The, the, the product I'm trying to sell is not expensify as a company, but expensify as a product to uh, individual customers. And so I think first off, we just got profitable just because I'm like, I want to own my own destiny. But now that we're profitable, we realize, wow, profit can be leveraged through debt in a super powerful way, in a super non-dilutive way. And so CIBC for us was fantastic. I mean, we talked with a number of different uh, debt providers, and I think we just really hit it off uh, with Paul. Um, and they've just been so incredibly flexible for finding different covenants and terms and just really understanding what we're trying to do with the business and really finding a way to make the numbers work. No, so debt is fantastic. Equity I could do without, but, but debt is fantastic. So you've been programming since you were in the first grade? Yeah, yeah. I started when I was uh, six back in the, you might remember the, Radio Shacks would have those Tandy computers. And so oh, yeah. I mean, we'd go to the mall, my parents would drop me off the Radio Shack and they'd go shopping <laughs> and we'd come back and I'd have like this little bat flying around the screen or something like this. And so, uh, but yeah, so I uh, started when I was six, uh, computer graphics and video games uh, throughout middle school and high school. I was writing 3D graphics engines. I worked in a virtual reality lab at the University of Michigan. Then I got into the game industry in Texas for a while. I uh, did a voice over IP, video conferencing, screen sharing, um, then uh, ultimately PDP content distribution with Red Swoosh. And so most of my technology background is like hard technology. It's like, you know, really, really difficult sorts of things. So it's an unus unusual profile for the expense report magnate that I've become. Learn more about the innovation economy, how to build a minimal viable product, retain that entrepreneurial spirit in the face of growing headcount, and how to take your company global. Subscribe to the CIBC Innovation Banking Podcast with Michael Hainsworth at CIBC.com slash innovation banking.